Hello and welcome. I'm Felix and this is the second episode of The Search Space, a podcast about logic programming. Today I speak with Ryan Brush, the original creator of Clara, a rules engine written in Clojure and running on the Java Virtual Machine. Rules engines are not exactly an example of logic programming, but their history has been intertwined with both artificial intelligence and logic programming in sometimes confusing ways. In the previous episode, Bob Kowalski explained why he thinks that this confusion has been detrimental to the understanding of rules in computing. So to explain what I find interesting about rules engines, I'd like to make uh, a comparison with functional programming. These days you hear a lot of talk about functional programming, but not long ago, functional programming was considered a very niche interest. A lot of people dismissed it as an academic pursuit, impractical for real-world usage, and so forth. But several pressures have brought it into the mainstream. Some functional programming languages have pretty widespread use, and even Java, the most mainstream of all languages, has adopted features from functional programming. One of the inspirations for this podcast is the belief that logic programming could, well, at least should, have a similar resurgence based on a different set of pressures. But uh, instead of switching to a functional language wholesale, many people have been inspired to use functional techniques while staying in the language and ecosystem they already know. And this can mean making the bulk of your code stateless and decreasing the use of hidden state, or it can mean making use of higher order functions and recursion to structure code, or making all data immutable by default. So in this way, we often talk about functional style as more of a continuum where you choose how much of it you and your team want. Okay, so if we want to promote programming in a logical style within our current languages, what would be the corresponding techniques that we can borrow from logic programming? There's probably a lot to be discovered about this, and I would love to hear what ideas you, dear listeners, have in this area. But I would start with two main principles, relations and rules. So firstly, think and program in terms of relations, rather than, say, hierarchies or objects. One easy way to do this is to lean on your relational database as much as possible. Secondly, think and program in terms of rules. And this is where rules engines enter the picture, and you will soon hear all about what they are and how they work. Many times when we talk about a feature or a system, we do express ourselves in terms of rules verbally, but then fail to bring that natural structure into the implementation. And the further the structure of a program is from our mental model of the problem it solves, the greater the risk for misunderstandings and bugs, and the harder it tends to be to maintain and modify the program when reality or business needs change. So, Let's find out how rules engines can help us write programs in a way that matches our natural way of thinking in this interview with Ryan Brush. All right, so Ryan Brush, welcome and thank you for joining me. 
Uh, thank you. My pleasure to be here. Uh, so we are going to talk about rule engines, and I would like to hear a little bit more about you and your background. But maybe just to get it started, could you could you just give us the first description of what a rule engine is and what it's for? Yeah, so the, the rule engine is, is part of what uh, something you might call a larger system called an expert system. Uh, and the idea there is that sometimes you need to encode a significant amount of domain knowledge or expertise. Uh, uh, in, in my world, I work a lot in healthcare, so we tend to represent uh, healthcare knowledge that we get from our, our clinicians or experts or research. We want to make the computer sort of understand that knowledge so they can apply it. And a rule engine is really kind of a way of encoding that expertise uh, in a way that is composable. So we can take units of knowledge and kind of glue them together in order to produce some desirable outcome. So, you know, like I said, I use it in the healthcare space, but if any, a lot of businesses or policies or anything like that kind of have to encode this sort of industry or domain knowledge in the system. And, and rule engines are really just a good way to, of putting those into individual pieces, like if-then statements that you can write sort of independently, uh, then have the engine itself sort of glue them together and keep track of what's true and what's not true. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so you mentioned if-then statements right there. So just from an engineering perspective, how, how, how is this really different from you know, how we express rules or logic and code normally? Yeah, so, so normally when we write code, uh, it, the, the burden falls on the developer to put all of the pieces together. I mean, in, in a typical programming setting, it's a linear flow through the system. Uh, we know we'll, we can go down branches and explore other areas, uh, but, but it's the, up to the programmer to kind of put all those branches together. And that can get uh, complicated if the domain logic gets really involved. So, for instance, if some deep nested point in my my code, I need some new unit of information uh, that that could be deep down in some function. Uh, and how do I get it to that function? Well, I, you know, I have to update the signature, and I have to update all the functions that call that, and I have to make sure that they're explicitly rewired together. And so that's sort of a typical uh, way that we we write programming, mm -hmm. whether using a, an imperative approach or a functional approach. Uh, and so that can get quite involved if you're trying to add all these things and wire them together ourselves, where uh, the idea behind a rule engine is that we can write these in more independent units. So I can just have some rule that says that goes out and looks at the working memory of things that the system knows about its current environment and bring in what that function needs. And so the rule engine kind of wires up the function itself, you know, as opposed to having to explicitly wire it uh, uh, from a developer's perspective. And I, th I think the idea there is that um, in, in simple use cases, that, that doesn't really matter too much. But if I'm dealing with tens of thousands of these little ifs, these little units of knowledge, uh, having to wire them themselves is, it can be very challenging. Um, so that's just why a, a rule engine kind of helps simplify our code by breaking things up and letting the, the system compose them for us. Right. So, so the rules uh, are, are defined more independently of each other. Yeah, that's. I think that's the one of the big pieces. So if I, I need to, uh, if I need to add some new inference that kind of builds on something that was previously inferred, I can you know write that or different. Uh, I mean, or I can even have different groups focusing on different areas of the knowledge base, uh, and, and, they can, and they'll be composed together. Right. So is this also, I, I guess, one of the, well, when I have tried to, to explain uh, to people what a rule engine is, I've focused on the point that it might be more similar to how people actually think and how we tend to express things when we're, you know, when, when we need to implement some logic, we usually sit down and talk about it and we write it down. 
And then what we actually end up writing in code could look quite different from that, which makes it hard to then kind of communicate and map back and forth. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And, and that's interesting. I, I, I took my description sort of from the perspective of a software engineer and how we can write code. And, and, but I think it also uh, it really helps to kind of look at this thing from the perspective of, and, and if I start from first principles, how do I go from representing human knowledge in a way that the computer can understand it. And, and the, the way that we always hear requirements is, uh, is often, you know, under these conditions, mm -hmm. do this, and under these other conditions, do that. Uh, in our code, you know, that can show up in our code, but it often gets lost in all of the plumbing we have to do to wire them together, whereas a rule engine kind of like allows us to express under these conditions, do this independently, and it does the plumbing for us, which I think, uh, to, the, to the point you just made, keeps the, uh, keeps the code much closer to the requirements. I think that the term I've, I've heard and used before is it minimizes the semantic gap between the requirements and the code, which I think ultimately makes it easier to understand and easier to maintain. Right, right. So, so in particular, what brought you into this whole area? You know, what, what kind of problems were you trying to solve? Yeah, uh, so I, I've spent my career working uh, in the uh, largely in the healthcare space, uh, and you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of domain knowledge. Uh, I mean, in terms of uh, the results of recommendations from medical research, recommendations from uh, regulatory bodies, uh, and then you know, sort of our own clinicians trying to figure out what the right thing for the, the system to do is. And so there's just a tremendous amount of, of knowledge there that we're constantly having to encode into our systems. Um, and so, uh, so I mean, these sort of expert systems in healthcare, I mean, they've been around for some time. They've, I mean, it's very common to have them. Uh, but a lot of times, historically, the, uh, these expert systems, uh, I mean, we found that the people that, was in, that were encoding this information were usually software engineers. And oftentimes, these expert systems would be you know, more targeted towards like a business person or something like that. So uh, uh, we kind of wanted to carry a, a more software engineer-friendly way to encode, encode this knowledge, simply because it, it is that sort of skill set that I think it takes to, to sort of represent this. It is I mean, uh, I mean, uh, writing rules is still something of a software engineering exercise because you kind of want that all of the disciplines and advantages of a software engineering approach. Um, but, but yeah, we first found it when we got these many, many thousands of, of under these conditions do this, under these conditions do that, many thousands of instances of that, that, that creating a nice developer-friendly way to represent that information was increasingly important for, for some of the products we were working on. Right. So, so, so the process there starts by getting all of these uh, requirements and rules uh, from, well, from medical doctors or other experts. Uh, you just collect them kind of in writing or, or how do you go about it? Yeah, so uh, I mean, oftentimes it, it well, it, it will be in writing. Um, we have, we we often have uh, basically create a collaborative environment. Uh, it's usually in, in what amounts to an internal wiki page uh, for you know, each particular item that we're trying to encode, and and then that way uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, our, our clinicians can sort of describe it there, and then as an engineering task, we can take you know those descriptions, we can uh, you know place them in rules, and then and the nice thing is is that 
you know, the rules are often readable enough that they're a great reference. We can all look at them and say, hey, you know, this is, this is correct or the, I mean, this, this is expressing what we think it wants to express. But, but yeah, I mean, usually we'll, we'll, we'll create some sort of, uh, sort of narrative document um, that'll be produced by our domain experts and then we'll take that and, and then turn it into, a, you know, formal rules that can be executed in our infrastructure. Right. So, yeah, so actually to come back to what we were saying before about what you call the semantic gap, I, I also I also find that the process goes in the opposite direction. Like when, if someone from outside of the of the tech team uh, asks me, you know, what what is really you know in in such and such a case, what is actually going to happen, you know, the way the system is implemented, it can be quite hard to answer that question. I might have to look at you know several different pieces of code and try to kind of re- reconstruct how they are all related and so forth. So. Yeah, so I, I really think the the process could could go in both directions. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, trying to untangle those questions or, or or like what what would happen if I added this rule to, to this requirement to it, and what are the implications of that? Or can also be difficult to untangle. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that that keeping that there, uh, keeping that gap small is important. Right. Uh, and, and actually, t- might take this this chance to add. I mean, it's not only the semantic gap of of the rules, of the logic itself, but I think we, it's when using these to use these expert systems effectively. Uh, it's really important that we minimize the semantic gap of the data model as well. So the facts in the in the expert system, the uh, the, the the objects or or whatever the the rules are being run against, should be in the same language. I mean, the same sort of domain language that our expert speaks as well, because that way we can all kind of communicate using the um, you know using the same terminology and. So so rules are half of it, but having a really good data model that that matches the understanding of, of your experts is the, is the other piece that really make that are really important to make this succeed. Mm, so are you talking about the data model here, not just the way it's implemented, on, you know, in a programming language, but just like the the language in which people are expressing themselves, even in writing? Yes, and and I think that it's it's really important to make that very consistent with the data model that's used in the programming language. So, yeah. I mean, so if, if, if your users are speaking in terms of, of orders and, and plans and schedules, I mean, name your data objects exactly the same mm. terms and have them basically be the same concept of what your users do. I mean, this is, I mean, this is really a, a, a good you know, domain-driven design approach, but I, mm. I think it's doubly important uh, in, when building expert systems so we can all sort of have that conversation, make sure we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. I think it's amazing, although I, I haven't worked at any system that's nearly as large as the one you're working on. Uh, but just like how how big an impact a small decision, like, you know, naming something, you know, maybe you're in a rush and people say, you know, oh, it doesn't really matter, just name it something, you know. And then, sure enough, like one or two months mm-hmm. later, you, you notice someone else at another level in the company are using a, a different term. You know, people are using different terms all over the place and they, they don't exactly map onto each other. And there's a, a lot of room for misunderstandings and, and, and simply ending up re- implementing the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah, that happens. And I've, I've seen that happen. It's, and I mean, it's, it's sad. It's, it, in a way, it can be almost comedic after the fact because you see all this and everything was built and we were talking about different things. Uh, uh, but I think it's very important to, uh, I mean, as we go through this, to kind of do sort of like knowledge uh, checks where we talk through the system and you talk through the implications of what happens with this. And and you know, if, if and I think it's very important to test for knowledge. If you describe this sort of thing and, and the domain expert 
with whom you're talking is looks you know confused or that doesn't seem to make sense to to him or her then then I think that's a flag that well maybe where our definitions have strayed but yeah yeah I think we have to constant diligence um, and, and curating uh, the language of the domain that we're describing is really important here. Exactly. So I know people who are working in business rules, which, you know, this kind of discipline, which is not necessarily so much about how you implement it, but more about how you put things in writing in a way that facilitates, you know, everyone, exactly what you're talking about, everyone having the same understanding. Like one of their main criteria is a well-written rule should be Immediately, it should be immediately obvious what it means and how to act upon it by anyone who is, you know, qualified or in, you know, mm-hmm. anyone who could be reasonably involved in implementing it. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, high bar, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, it is a high bar, and, and you know, we, we probably won't always achieve it, but I, I think that that absolutely is the right thing to say. I mean, we might miss sometimes, but if we can always be be working towards that, uh, then I, I think that that will put us in a good place. So okay, so you so then you decided to actually write a rule engine from scratch. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you came up with that decision. And I, I did watch your your strange loop talk from a few years back, and I thought it was really great the way you described the history of rule engines and, and the turn that you decided to take. Yeah, thank you. That was a, that was a fun talk to to give. Uh, so we kind of got uh, where we are. Uh, we had been using, like I said, rule engines in, in the healthcare space for some time, and there's a lot of knowledge to uh, encode there. Uh, but one of the things that we find that, uh, we, that I mentioned in that, that talk is that so often many of the rule engines, their target audience isn't developers. Uh, it's really towards more of a business analyst that's trying to build some big decision table or something like that and then turn that into code. And, and we just found that, that any attempt to focus a rule engine on a business analyst uh, was inevitably running into cases where they couldn't easily express logic that we needed. So we keep on seeing in our, our rule engines things like you know little fragments of Java code or something else like sort of spread throughout it. So just to be uh, clear, so, so, uh, so people would actually in, for example, a spreadsheet or something like that, which it was supposed to be that simple that anyone could edit a spreadsheet, but then to get around the limitations, they would insert snippets of code that would then get evaluated <laughs> somehow in the, in the engine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think people realized that that sticking snippets in Java code and spreadsheets was pretty ridiculous <laughs> pretty early. So that didn't really proliferate. <laughs> but uh, but what we did see is a bunch of of you know. I mean, so we'd use you know off the shelf rule engines, and yeah, we just saw code just explicitly built into the rules themselves. Uh, huh. uh, oftentimes, so yeah, and, and obviously this isn't this isn't something that that that's. I don't think anyone kind of woke up thinking, hey, let's let's uh, have our our easy to use business rule system and stick right. code in it without they had you know no compilation or checks or unit tests or any of that sort of thing but it's kind of they came up against the limitations and they and and so these were all the different kinds of workarounds that that people were doing yeah exactly exactly so we, we we're kind of fighting against it um and so we, we had an opportunity in, in a, a newer project to sort of represent this and you know, what we hope is a better way to make a sort of developer-centric way to represent rules. Um, and so we were encoding this knowledge for, uh, for, for one of the newer projects that we were working on. Uh, and we actually chose to use Clojure as, as sort of a, a starting point, um, simply because when we were representing this knowledge, we, we, we actually started with Clojure 
because we could represent our own sort of domain specific uh, structures, our domain specific control structures that helped us uh, um, help us mm. more express this logic. So it, it kind of goes back to the uh, the whole uh, guy, the great guy steel talk of of growing a programming language. We felt like we could we could grow uh, uh, you know features of a language that made sense you know, for our domain. Uh, and then in, in the early days of this project, we actually, uh, since you know, writing a rule engine from scratch is, is, is not a trivial task, uh, we actually used an existing, we actually used the Drools rule engine sort of yeah. under the scenes for this sort of thing. So we had closure code and then they would generate some Drools uh, rules underneath that. Um, and that worked okay, but we just kept on running into sort of this limitations of this you know, translating and generating the Drools rules and then calling back, back and forth between closure functions. Mm. Uh, so you were generating so them as Java classes? Are they represented as Java objects, or? Uh, yeah. So well, oftentimes they were represented using the the DRL, the, the Drools domain specific model, and then Drools has the capability of calling arbitrary Java functions. And since you know, we can expose Clojure as Java functions, we would basically interoperate mm -hmm. like that. So we might have a pile of Drools rules where it would call back and, and invoke a, a Clojure function on the on the right hand side. Uh, so, we, and we had, I mean, so that's kind of where we started there. Uh, and then, of course, it, it, there's just so many limitations there. Like, I would, I really wanted to be able to write just arbitrary closure expressions, um, you know, at any point in the rule. And that became difficult when, when trying to compile down to Drool's rules. And uh, so, as a side project, uh, I mean, just a... I mean, this is literally something I, I kind of picked up for my own investigation. I, you know, I picked up the old uh, uh, Reedy algorithm papers and read them just to kind of help understand mm -hmm. that. And, and then I just started, you know, fiddling around with with uh, some closure code, saying, "Hey, can I can I build a? How easy would it be to build a, a Reedy network uh, in closure?" And and I found that the the very you know the the early iterations to get something simple going were uh, fairly straightforward uh, to to get that working. And so I. I built a very, very rudimentary uh, rule engine in Clojure just to just to kind of for my own uh -huh. amusement more than anything else, and and this wasn't part of my professional efforts at this point. It was just a, a side project, um, but over time, we kind of kept on pulling on that thread, and and over time, we found that hey, we could actually express uh, quite a bit of what we wanted to do in in Clojure, um, and then actually one of the nice things is we discovered that sort of by taking advantage of of some of the uh, the things that Clojure does really well in terms of immutable data structures, uh, we could create some nice optimizations uh, within our rule engine. So, uh, for our workloads, uh, as this as as what became Clara grew, uh, we found a pretty significant performance improvement uh, by using just Clara instead of uh, instead of using Drools. And uh, you know, the sum of those things made it clear that hey, we're just going to shift and mm. use Clara as our primary rule engine for these projects. Okay, so you mentioned the Reedy algorithm, uh, which has been underlying this kind of system for uh, what, like, forty years or more. Could you give just like what's the gist of that algorithm? And what were some of the? You said it was fairly easy to get going, and then what are some of the challenges? You know, to make it work at scale. Yeah, so the the core of the Reedy algorithm, it, it's really takes it recognizes that a lot of times in these expert systems, there's a great deal of redundancy in sort of the nested expressions. So, like we talked about, how these under these conditions do that, and under those conditions, you know, do this. 
uh, a lot of times there, there's sub-expressions that might uh, that show up again and again and again. So we might have in the healthcare space say, hey, is this person uh, a diabetic, for instance? We might have many rules that do that. And, and previously in, in expert systems, in early attempts of them, you know, that the is a diabetic unit of logic would be run many, many times. And if you have hundreds of thousands of rules and you're running the same logic hundreds of thousands of times, obviously that's quite inefficient. Uh, so the, the, the key uh, insight from the Reedy algorithm is basically to detect the commonality of, of these nested, these sub-expressions and then essentially build them into a network. So I check is a diabetic once, and then if that's true, then I can go to the next point of of, of my uh, under these conditions logic, and and uh, and you know share any logic between many rules there. So so I mean I think uh, you know Reedy or you know really, really means like a net or network, and and so we kind of glue these things together um, by you know, taking a list of rules, and then uh, the algorithm will determine the. That find the commonality and basically build a network so it can data flow data can flow through this logic network um, without uh, and minimizing the amount of duplication that are, that's needed to it. That's kind of the the core Reedy algorithm uh, from from the original okay. paper. Of course, there's a bunch more of, of improvements and enhancements that have been built over the decades. But so so at at the core, it's it's really an optimization to make sure you're executing each rule, I guess, only once. And in the right order, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, and that's. I think that's the. the I mean, that's sort of how it how it started as an optimization, and but very quickly there a, a bunch of nice nice things kind of grew on top of that. So, for instance, uh, one thing that that we use extensively that that builds on top of that optimization is truth maintenance, where if we assert some fact is true, and then the network will keep track of everything that was inferred from the assertion that something was true. And then if we change that and now assert that something is false, it will retract all of the conclusions that were drawn from that. So originally the network was sort of was primarily an optimization for it, uh, but I think that that even very early on it was recognized that this network can be used kind of trace the uh, the logic, trace how other things were inferred, and then and then basically maintain that. So when something becomes false, we can retract that, uh, which is which is really another optimization as well because. Previously, if I removed some sort of, if I retract some unit of knowledge, I would have to reevaluate everything that I determined from that. But since the network kind of traces how we inferred new things, uh, we can actually uh, we can actually use that knowledge to determine, you know, how uh, our understanding, uh, the system's understanding, changes uh, as as the as what's given to it. Right. Changes. So if you have ten or twenty or what have you things that together make some other thing true. And then if even one of those other things, or it could be like by several steps and several layers of logic and conditions, and when if, if anything in that on that path changes, then the system will automatically uh, retract the, the thing that became true. Yes, exactly, uh, which is a, a wonderful property that just sort of a, a guaranteed consistency of, of truth driven by the system, which is very difficult to implement and, and on your own, but, uh, but it's one of the great use cases for, for rules engines when you have lots of pieces of information and lots of units of knowledge to just let the system manage yeah. that for you. So I wanted to get into something here because um, you know I have been looking at rule engines for, for, for some years and and especially how to you know start using them in an existing system in a stepwise way, starting small. And one thing that I had a really hard time figuring out was so what you're describing, the benefits that you're describing now, 
uh, you have many you have many assertions, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, and lots of rules and um, facts that have been derived, and then the benefits of things automatically being retracted, etc. It seems like you have to you need to have a really a long running process with a lot of state, which might duplicate a lot of the state that you have in your primary database. And it kind of runs against the gist of how, at least in, you know, in typical web CRUD, web programming, how we tend to not want to have any state uh, apart from the typically a relational database. And then later on, and, and partly also based on your talk, I started to see like, okay, you can actually start just you know, wrapping up smaller engines in in functions or methods, and the surrounding code doesn't know need to know anything about them being, you know, implemented as a rule engine, and that seems much more approachable. But then it seems like you're not getting some of those amazing benefits that you are talking about. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Uh, and really, most of our usage tends to be more just more stateless in terms of. I mean, we'll we'll bring load up a, a fair amount of data, then we'll we'll basically our rules are basically a function. Um, we, we pass you know the, everything we know about um, this person's medical history into these rules, and it'll return a bunch of things that we infer from that. Um, so yeah, in those workloads, the, we get benefits in terms of we've greatly simplified the logic. And we've greatly simplified the explainability of the system because we can trace that logic through. So, so there's a couple of advantages there in terms of the, that usage of the system. Um, we don't get you know the same advantages of a, a long state, long-term stateful process that you describe. Um, you know, and that's okay. It's like I, I think there's a lot of advantages to statelessness. And and if your workload is, I mean, our our workload is such that we're able to recreate our rule engines efficiently enough that we can simply discard that state and recreate it whenever we need to. Uh, so I, I think that, that in cases in which, if you can recreate the state of, your, of uh, the rule engine efficiently enough, then just viewing it as a function, I think, is, is an absolutely mm -hmm. fine way to do it. Uh, I think that simplifies a lot of code. Um, and and, we, and we, there are some exceptions uh, for our workloads as well. There are very long-lived rule engines that will basically, uh, what we do is, is we, we kind of persist the entire working memory off to disk, and then and then uh, as new units of information come in, we just update that. We, I mean, we load the persisted working memory. Uh, so I mean, our, our our actually our application process is still stateless, but we actually just persist the entire working memory of the rule session to disk, and just kind of have a queue of new units of information that we feed yeah. into it. Uh, you know, reevaluate that, and then save it off to disk again. So and we we have a combination of the, both those loads. But I think that really whether you're stateful or stateless is I mean, let let that be dictated by the you know by the other requirements of your system, and and we can use rule engines either in a stateful or, or stateless mm. manner, just based on, on on what you need to do with it. Yeah, yeah. So th there's another thing that that I have been pondering is um, if you handcraft the logic for 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 everything, um, you typically try to be a little bit, you know, save some database reads by being a little bit clever like okay first i will evaluate this and then if this happens to be the case then i will fetch some more data and then i will do some more and you know in the best case i will only have to fetch this and you know and so forth but that's not really scale doesn't really scale well but so if if you want to take the rule engines approach it seems you have to sort of just load up everything that could possibly uh affect the outcome and you know up front and then hand it yeah. in 
Yeah, and and well, yeah, that's that is how we've approached the system. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily exclusively has to be that way. So, so I mean, the the way we've tend to build our systems, like yeah, we we pass in everything that that could be needed. One of the nice things about um, you know our our rule engine, the the Clara implementation, is that if a given input, if a given fact matches no rules, then it'll basically just be immediately garbage collected. So we can kind of just stream in you know, arbitrarily large amounts of data, and then you know things that are not relevant will just be garbage collected. Uh, so that helps with that sort of load. Um, there are variants of of these rules engines that that uh, kind of do more what you just described in terms of of going back and getting more data as needed, uh, and and we, when when that sort of pattern is doable in Clara as well. Basically, what we've seen is is uh, if if there's some additional information needed, we have a rule that that or a generated rule that goes and text, oh, I need this extra piece of information, and so it inserts a fact that says oh, I need this piece of information, and then the containing host will go check, oh, you need this, so it'll go retrieve it and then inject that into mm -hmm. the rule engine uh, afterwards. So one of the... Um, so the, there are patterns for... Sorry. Going better. Yeah. No, okay, yeah, so, okay. so that's really interesting. So, so the out, one outcome of the rule engine's execution would be that it's actually kind of expressing that it needs more data. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of a way to sort of add some backward chaining capabilities to an otherwise forward chaining system. Is basically just add a fact that goes that triggers some other production of additional information. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, so I have a similar question about the output side. Uh, it seems you could you could use a rule engine in in well, basically two ways. Either you put in a lot of data and then you let it execute until it, I guess, it's done. Um, and then you read out the values that you're interested in. So it's sort of a pure function. And then you do something with those values. Or, but, but it's often illustrated how you can also use a rule engine to actually take action as part of its execution. Like, you know, you know mm -hmm. this and that happened, therefore this, you know, fire off this uh, action of some kind. So what do you, are, have, are you using both of these? Or, you know, do, do you favor one over the other? Yeah, so so we we strongly favor a functional approach to to using the rule engine, which may not be surprising since you know this is this is right. closure based, but uh, but essentially we, we none of our rules have side effects. Uh, so we it basically yeah they'll return some value and then the consuming application will pass that on or send that notification mm -hmm. uh, there. And, and and I think that having rules with side effects, I mean there are instances where it's it's doable, but uh, it, I have to bring on caution there because sometimes uh, you know, if, if, if when you're, especially when you're dealing with facts that can be retracted and you don't want to necessarily fire things that aren't when you don't have all the information and uh, it, it just sort of adds like an additional thing you have to keep track of and and in some domains that's entirely manageable um, so I, I don't I won't say that there's never a good use case for it but uh, I think we definitely prefer just viewing this as a purely functional approach to, to describing logic. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something interesting earlier, uh, like when you have expressed your logic as, as rules, if someone asks like, okay, if we add this, if we add a rule like this, what will actually happen? And it can be really hard to answer that question. So is that something you can do with your you know, use of rule engines that you can kind of run experiments like that? Yes, I, th I think that, that some of the things that we can do, like we'll we can create visualizations of the you know, actual rule graph or descriptions of the graph of how rules are are you know connected or interrelated. Uh, so I mean we can kind of see I mean, this, these descriptive approaches of of uh, 
of the logic that as it's all composed together to see how things would connect to one another. Uh, many times, to be frank, though, is like the, the logic graph gets very, very complicated. Even so, even like a visualization of that can be, mm. you know, mm. challenging to work through. I think that there's some real opportunity there to continue improving the sort of visual description of of, of these uh, of these uh, rule engines. I think that there that uh, I mean, I think there's some interesting things that could be done in that space. Um, but usually, I mean, frankly, we we there's no replacement for just otherwise good software engineering practices. So. Uh, a, you know, a continuous integration model of, um, that p- provides feedback uh, you know, to the end user to make sure that hey, the expected outcomes uh, are being arrived. Um, a really good you know, sort of property-based testing. So uh, we want to have you know a good collection of of test uh, facts, test unit of knowledge, and then be able to search that assert that you know certain properties of the system you know should always. Uh, always be true. So there's no sort of replacement for the sort of good software engineering practices to validate uh, to validate the system. Um, rule engines can make the logic a lot easier to build and a lot easier to reason about. Um, uh, but, you know, there's there's still no, no free lunch when it comes to uh, good software practices. Okay, so something else you mentioned, you talked about um, backward chaining and uh, you know, uh, this this podcast is primarily about logic programming, but everything related to it, really. And so, but it would just be interesting to hear a little bit about, I don't know if you have, you know, uh, delved into logic programming, but it just the, the difference, mm-hmm. as you see it, between the type of thing a rule engine is doing and what a backward chaining uh, system like a prolog system would do. Do you have some, you know, yeah. experience there? Yeah, I think that it's, I think this is this is a great topic. I think well, first of all, my my first recommendation if you're building a new system um, to you know, to try and take you know both a, a backward chaining and and a you know forward chaining or an expert system approach and just you know, experiment with them a little bit with a part of your domain to feel you know, to figure out what feels more natural. Uh, I think that what what I found is that that uh, and just in general. Uh, a backward training uh, logic programming engine works really well in any problem space that you can describe as like a series of constraints and then you're searching that space under those constraints to find you know a solution or an optimal solution so i mean there's lots of you know, great examples of logic programming to you know just to solve puzzles and to or to solve like uh, factory floor plan layouts that need to meet certain criteria of what can go where and what that sort of thing I think logic program is absolutely the best way to to do anything that can be described as a series of constraints. Mm. Whereas a, an expert system, you know, like what we do with with Clara, tends to work a little better if I want to encode a bunch of of uh, sort of domain expert knowledge in terms of uh, under these conditions, you know, apply recommend this medication and this intervention and that sort of thing. So, if encoding encoding expert knowledge, I think works better in a, a forward changing a chaining approach, whereas a constraint based system works uh, really well in logic programming. But again, uh, my best suggestion for anyone trying to figure out which approach to use is to kind of take a, a small bit of your problem and, uh, and you know, see if you can implement them in either one and, and then, then choose what feels more natural for your, the problem you're working hmm. on. Um, so I, mean, I, I think I saw some discussion on the Clara email list about actually adding backward chaining to Clara and that it has been done. I think Drew's. Have done it, um, and maybe some of the rule engines. Is that is that a big challenge, or uh, do they fit naturally? So Clara doesn't explicitly have uh, backward chaining uh, built in. Um, you can you can do something similar to it with the approach that I described a little bit earlier. In that, 
And actually, the way drools or the way um, other uh, forward chaining engines create backward chaining capabilities is they'll they'll basically insert a new synthesis. Uh, they'll have some sort of synthetic fact that they'll insert into working memory that says, "Oh, I need now need to go figure out this piece of information." And then another rule will detect that synthetic fact and then go, you know, either load up more data or, um, or you know, trigger off another, you know, another collection of rules to infer that. So there's a, so basically the same the underlying engine uh, doesn't change. Uh, it's still but it it, there's, it it basically can simulate a backward chaining approach by inserting these specialized synthetic facts that that go and trigger additional logic to go and infer other things that are needed at that point in time. So from that regard, it actually I mean you can actually do that with Clara today. Uh, with since you know, Clara itself, you know, it offers a domain-specific language to start, but it also offers the rule engine just as a as an API, as a data structure. So you can you know write your own rule uh, mechanism and 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 generate whatever synthetic facts you want, and then be able to uh, use a you know something of a backward chaining approach from there if you need to. Um, but yeah, it's not something that we've kind of added first-class support to in Clara. I mean. Uh, our workloads uh, have have worked pretty well with just the forward chaining approach, but I think that yeah maybe that's something that that uh, gets in there oh, at some okay. point. Okay, so, um, okay. So another thing, how about um, negation? Uh, negation is a big deal in logic programming. Different systems have different approaches. There's mm -hmm. been all of this research and debates. Uh, so in in a in a rule engine like Clara, like how how do you handle negation? Can you can you set up a rule that is uh, well what's called negation as failure, where you know just the fact that something has not been asserted is something you can trigger on, and or can you can you also explicitly assert that something is not the case? And how, and how do these work together? Yeah, yeah, and that's actually uh, yeah. So negation is a, a first class uh, uh, concept in these these uh, in Clara and you know really you know any significant forward chaining engine. It's it's actually um, a mechanism to describe that. It's actually you know, uh, proposed in the original Reedy paper that, that Charles Forgey wrote in, what, 1977. So, so yeah, that, that's built in, and, and there's basically the, the network of nodes has a specialized negation node that will uh, basically trigger downstream processing only if the, the criteria in that negation node is not true. Um, and so there's there's a little bit more to if, if, if in, in handling like very complex negation scenarios, but but yeah, negation is a first class concept that with, with basically uh, with a node built in the network specifically to to handle that. And and of course we we do quite a bit of logic that that uh, you know basically triggers on on uh, the negation of other criteria. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, I know we're getting short on time uh do, do you want to if, if there's anything more you want to say about clara i mean i think clara look is i haven't i haven't used it but i think it's uh, i really like the approach you're taking and the, uh, everything <laughs> starting with the slogan retaking rules for for developers yeah right i, I think that the the uh, the only uh, one additional thing that i'd add in uh, terms of clara that i think makes it a, a little bit different than other rule engines out there is that it actually uses a purely immutable data structure, uh, and by that I mean uh, every time I insert new facts into a session and or fire rules or make any change, it doesn't actually mutate the underlying session. It actually produces a new session that uh, that represents the new state. Now, of course, under underneath it all, a, a tremendous amount of of state is actually shared between you know session A and session A prime. 
um, as we make these changes. Uh, so it's pretty efficient to do that sort of thing. Uh, but Clojure itself, having such excellent immutable data structures, we were able to benefit from that in Clara and create you know, what I think is unique in, in rule engines in that since our working memory is immutable, we have lots of nice advantages that we can do. So if I, if I apply a series of changes, I can always roll it back by just holding on to a reference to the previous uh, session state. Um, and which is really nice for things like if I'm processing from a queue and there's some sort of failure, well, I can just discard my new version, hold on to the previous reference, and, and I just get back my, my rule engine in exactly the same state that it was, was before. Uh, and I think that, that Clojure, you know, just this purely functional, immutable programming uh, has benefited the Clojure community quite a bit. And you know, we're able to leverage that in Clara to get exactly those same advantages uh, in the in the in the uh, context of a of a rule engine. And I don't I don't think anything else is doing anything quite like that. So I think it's kind of a kind of a, a cool thing that that uh, can be pretty powerful as well. Well, okay, S this is great. <laughs> There's uh, we covered a lot. I think. Uh, is there anything um, you want to add? Uh, no, I, I, I really. Those are really excellent, and thoughtful questions. Uh, everything that you covered there. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It sounds like. I mean, obviously, you're very knowledgeable of this space. So this is really fun. I, I really liked how you kind of explored some of the a lot well, of these, these areas. So. Uh, As a, so I, I, I just like to say, like for people listening, um, I one of the things I as I said, found inspiring with Clara is that I really feel like it lowers the bar to try to experiment with this kind of thing and try to introduce it even in a small way in existing systems. So let's hope more people will get uh, on the train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Oh, actually, that reminds me, the, you know, one fun snippet that I like to, to drop in there is like, so uh, if, if people are concerned about getting on the train, uh, so <laughs> Clara and all of Clojure is still smaller than Drool's core and its wow. dependencies. So. <laughs> I think that don't hesitate to bring in Clara and Clojure just because, oh, it's another programming language. It's still smaller than, than tools, which is which is really more of a testament to the Clojure community because they, they've done really some incredible right. work. Right, and we should that. mention, uh, of course, this can interoperate with anything on the JVM, right? Yes, absolutely. And yeah, and, and we, we frequently use just plain old Java objects as our facts and our rule engine. Yeah. yeah, okay. Okay, that's great. So I'll let you go. I know you have other duties. So thank you very much once again. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this interview with Ryan Brush. I thought it was great to hear Ryan's perspective, both as a maker and user of a rules engine. And I highly recommend checking out his talks about Clara online. They are, of course, linked from the show notes on this podcast's webpage, which is thesearch.space. In the previous episode, Bob Kowalski explained how using rules engines to trigger actions leads to unclear or unmanageable semantics, similar to standard imperative programming. But as you just heard, Ryan for the most part advocates using the rules engine as a black box pure function, where the main benefit is uh, how you get to express the interactions among a potentially very large collection of rules. As I said in the intro, I think this is one of the most accessible ways of getting the flavor of logic programming into our existing systems. You can look around for a decent ready implementation that works in your language. For the JVM, of course, there is Clara, and there is another interesting Clojure engine called Naga, 
which is based on data log, which is uh, which also comes from the world of logic programming. In Ruby, I have played with one called Wangi, which seems pretty solid. I recently discovered one called Durable Rules, which is written in C and has bindings for JavaScript, Ruby, and Python. Again, check out the show notes for links to all of these. And if you don't want to pull in a rules engine, the very simplest thing you can do is to encapsulate as much as possible of the core logic of your program in dedicated predicate functions or classes that are easy to compose. Just extracting the logic and slicing it up into the pieces that correspond to your problem domain is a great exercise and makes your system more maintainable. As always, I would very much appreciate any feedback you might have. You can find me on Twitter at searchspacepod or send me an email to felix at thesearch.space or just go to the webpage, which again is thesearch.space. If you feel generous, you can even buy me a cup of coffee from there to help fuel future episodes of this podcast. And many thanks to everyone who sent me feedback and ideas on Twitter after I put out the first episode. And of course, to those of you who donated one, two, or even five cups of coffee. I assure you those beverages will directly contribute to the cause of promoting logic programming. Last but not least, if you like the podcast, please share it with your network. And if you love it, please give it five stars or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to help other people find it. See you soon in the next episode. The music is Phase One by Silo Zyko, used under Creative Commons license.